I was in California one time uh, when an earthquake hit. I was actually in a choir concert and I was standing on the top row of the risers and we heard this low rumble, almost like heavy equipment out in the street. It was like, like that, only deeper and, and uh, stronger. And then the whole set of risers went like this to the right and then <laughs> came back to the left and stopped. And we all looked at each other like, did that just happen? Well, the next day I visited with a family whose house was closer to the epicenter. And they, they showed me around and anything in their house that was standing like this direction was still standing exactly as it had. But anything that was in 90 degrees to that, that was standing in the other way, the way the waves went out, had toppled. So like this big bookcase in their living room had come down, the entertainment center had come down. There were cracks shooting up the walls in their living room. And we walked out into the street in front of their house and there were large fissures opening up that, it, that had opened up in the pavement right, right in front of their house. Well, when an earthquake hits, you realize to your horror that the things you thought were safe and steady are not always safe and they're not always steady, including like the ground you're standing on. And I think it is that feeling that we have all been feeling for the last two years. There are 68 countries around the world who have never had a peaceful transition of power following an election. But we have. Here in the US, we've always had that. You could count on it. It was as steady as the ground underneath our feet until 10 months ago, when uh, a mob, as you know, tried to grab our vice president and hang him on a gallows, at least that looks to be their intent, 138 police officers were injured. And I don't know if you followed the story, but four more police officers committed suicide after that day from the trauma. The ground is shaking. And then last summer, after the killings of Ahmaud Arbery, thankful for the verdict that came back this week, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, is just we all know there was looting, setting cop cars on fire, 200 cities, more than that actually, uh, had to call curfews. And the damage hit one to two billion dollars, which is the most that's ever happened in a civil unrest in our country. The ground is shaking. Not to mention, we're still in a giant plague that's left five million people dead around the world, and now we have this Omicron variant to figure out what that's gonna bring us. But that's on the rise. And even nature itself, which to me as a kid always felt really steady, is going through convulsions. In, in California alone, because of record low rainfall and protracted drought, um, more acres were torched by wildfires last year than any time since they've started keeping those records. And this year, so far, is going at three times the amount of last year. Millions of acres, over 8,000 different fires. It's hard to even take in. Nine people did. So when Jesus tells his followers in tonight's gospel, there will be great earthquakes, 
famines and plagues in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven, it sounds like I'm watching the news. He has my attention. And maybe he has yours. Jesus told his followers very clearly that they would live through times when everything is shaken. And now you and I are living in a time like that. So let us listen to Jesus as he tells us, as his followers, how to stand when everything around us is shaking. Here's what started the conversation, and I'm sorry that the gospel reading in the lectionary includes only a small chunk out of Luke 21. You really need the whole chapter. Um, and I'll be referring to that if you do have a new version Bible with you. But anyway, what starts the conversation, Luke 21.5, is Jesus and his followers are standing in the temple in Jerusalem, which is one of the biggest, most awe-inspiring and beautiful buildings ever built. Not just then, I mean to this day. You can go to Jerusalem and see a stone there from the temple that is 11 feet high, so think of like two of me almost, and then 44 feet wide, and it's estimated that it weighs over 600,000 pounds. I have no idea how they got that there. Uh, but anyway, Luke 21.5, some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. And here's Jesus' take on all that. He doesn't go, wow, that is impressive. He goes, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Which seems impossible. They're, vir they're virtually impossible to move. And the temple itself is the heart of the country. It's the center of their religion. It's the center of their government. And it's the center of their finance. I mean, it would, it, could it really, really ever be destroyed? And that would be like us losing, say, the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the Capitol building all in the same day. We know that couldn't happen. Well, just like we were shocked on 9-11, when it did happen, Jesus' disciples are shocked. They cannot imagine a future in which this temple is not standing. And they say, when? When? When will all this happen? What signs will let us know that it's close? Now, the disciples ask when. But in his answer, Jesus gives them a little bit of when, but a whole lot of how. A whole lot of how to be ready whenever. The disciples want to know the outward signs. And Jesus is really focusing on their inward preparation so that they'll be ready no matter when. But let's start with when tonight because that's where the disciples start with their questions. It's where I think all of us have some natural curiosity. And also, we have to start there because the, what Jesus does say about when has caused more consternation among his followers than almost anything else. So let's take a look at that. Now, of the signs that Jesus gives that the cataclysm is coming, the two most identifiable are this. Jerusalem will be destroyed. He says Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles. Okay? And Jesus will return. He says at that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So we've got these two very clear markers that Jesus gives us. Jerusalem is destroyed and Jesus returns. 
So when? When will all those things happen? The most specific thing Jesus says here about timing is this, verse 32. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, a generation is roughly 40 years, considered that, and Jesus is speaking around the year 30 here, which would place the destruction of Jerusalem and the return of Jesus no later than, say, 70 AD, AD 70. And obviously, Jesus has not returned today. So all of this, like I said, has caused some Bible interpreters to twist themselves into pretzels. But I think the simplest explanation is that this is what we might call a bifocals prophecy, which is actually a fairly common type of prophecy that you'll see in the Bible. Now, imagine that we all have a pair of bifocals. So we've got uh, down on the bottom the, the lens that helps us see up close. And then up on the top, we've got the lens that helps us see at a distance. But now imagine that you're looking through both lenses at the same time. So you can see both close and far away. Now, it is this that a number of prophets are doing as they are moved by the Holy Spirit and see what God is doing, both here in the short term and what he's gonna do in a similar way, but more fulfilled way in the distance. Do you see that? All right, let me give you one example, which is a, you'll see this verse on Christmas cards a lot. The prophet Isaiah goes to King Ahaz and says, uh, the virgin, or the Hebrew word Alma also means young woman at this time in that culture, they're virtually the same. Will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Well, this has a very specific near-term mentioned. Right now, Ahaz is being invaded by two kings, one called uh, Pekah uh, and the other one called Rezin. And I probably butchered those names. Sorry, you Hebrew scholars. So up close in 730 BC, the prophet's saying, look, a baby boy will be born soon, Ahaz. So give nine months and then the birth. And by the time that child gets up to where he has, the youngster has some moral sense, maybe age three or four, where kids definitely know what I did was just wrong, but I did it anyway, okay? By that time, those two kings that are attacking you right now are gonna be gone from the scene. So don't worry, Ahaz, Emmanuel, God's with us. Now, that's the, the bottom lens in the bifocals prophecy that Ahaz is, uh, that Isaiah's working from. Now the distance lens. Isaiah looks out and says, yes, but there's a deeper, richer, more fulfilled version of this same prophetic work that God is doing in days to come. Luke 21, when he's talking about what's going to happen and when. He's, he's uttering a bifocals prophecy. And he's saying up close, within one generation or about 40 years from now, Jerusalem will be leveled. And Jesus is on the dot. Exactly in AD 70, exactly 40 years later, the Roman army comes in under Titus. If you've seen the Arch of uh, Titus, then you know what I'm talking about, the Arc de Triomphe. 
They knock the temple into rubble, kill thousands of Jews. They take 50,000 of them as slaves to go build the Colosseum. So if you visit the Colosseum, you're visiting a death trap that was built on the backs of Jewish slaves taken in the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jesus sees all of that in the up-close lens and says, this generation will not pass till that happens. But looking through the distance lens now, Jesus says, the kind of terrifying shaking of everything you think is steady and that could never possibly go down, that's gonna happen in an even more global scale before I return. And it is about that return that Jesus gives us no timing. In fact, he says, I don't know the when. He says very clearly in Matthew 24, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So therefore, we should take from this that it is pointless to try to work out the timing of that. If Jesus doesn't know, we don't know. We have to live with that. But what we do know is he got the up-close prophecy like that. So this is happening, friends. This will come. Now let's turn our attention from the when to the how which is more important and what Jesus actually spends more of his time on. How do you and I make sure we are ready for these times of great shaking and for the ultimate return of Jesus Christ? Jesus wants us to know. He wants us to be prepared for whatever we might go through with our faith intact. And he wants us to stand. So if I may, let me distill Jesus's instructions to his disciples in two short statements The first way that you and I will stand is this. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In verse 9, he says, when you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. In verse 12, he says, they will seize you and persecute you, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you'll defend yourselves. He says, I'll be your defense attorney. And verse 16 They will put some of you to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. Don't be afraid. Now to me, this sounds at best counterintuitive and and at worst impossible. How How am I supposed to not be afraid when there's wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, plagues, persecutions, hostility, etc. Oh, and some Christians will be killed. Well, what Jesus does here is he asks us to even see the worst case scenario that some of, they will put some of you to death. And he says, even then, not a hair of your head will perish. We may die, but nothing will die. Because in God, even if we die, we live forever. And how Jesus is inviting us to act and us to live our lives is how he himself lives his life. There's that one time where he's out in a boat and this huge storm comes up and he's with, uh, most of the people he's with are like lifelong commercial fishermen and the storm's so bad, the boat is being swamped to such an extent it looks like the boat's going down. And even the fishermen are like, we're gonna drown. We're not getting out of this one. And Jesus is snoozing. How can he do that? 
Dallas Willard says, Jesus knows even if the boat goes down and I drown, I'm still okay because God will give me my life back again. My life belongs to God. So during times of great shaking, when so much can be taken away, it is natural to feel anxiety. But as Christians, we are given this opportunity to live in a way that we cannot get there on our own, but we can get there through the truth of Jesus Christ and his help, which is to realize even if I lose it all, I don't lose it. I'm safe in God. I really am. I saw a research study published by the CDC about how we're all doing during the pandemic. And it it said symptoms of anxiety disorder and depressive disorder increased considerably in the United States during April to June of 2020 compared with the same period the year before. Not surprising, right? I think we all have felt anxious and stressed. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I am saying when Jesus is telling his disciples about what is shaking, what's going to be shaken, he says, don't be frightened. He says, make up your mind not to worry beforehand. He says, not a hair of your head will perish. I wonder if some of you right now are, are, are genuinely scared about what you see happening in our country. The divisions, the rage, the political gridlock, the cultural violence. I think that's scary stuff. But in times like this, when it feels like so much is shaking, Jesus invites us to remember what can never be shaken. Not a hair of your head will perish. There is life beyond life. We're safe in God. He wants us to know that. Don't be afraid. Well, that's the first phrase. And that phrase, Jesus teaches us so we won't get too caught up in the bad things. We won't be doom scrolling our way down into despair. The second phrase, actually, then, is the opposite. It keeps us from getting too caught up in the good things. And that is, don't be distracted. You'll see this in your gospel reading in verse 34. Jesus says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. Or I like the message translation even a little better. Be on your guard Don't let the sharp edge of your expectation get dulled by parties and drinking and shopping. Now, during times of stress, people naturally go toward drinking. According to a study reported by the National Institutes of Health, 60% of the respondents in their survey reported increased drinking compared to pre-COVID-19. Not a surprise. Reasons for the increased drinking included increased stress, increased alcohol availability, and boredom. And Jesus is saying, don't get distracted. That's not how you'll be ready for me. So we might ask ourselves, is our connection to Jesus Christ, is it getting dulled? Is what used to have a sharpness to it getting rubbed off? Are are we really moving more and more to things that will anesthetize, whether drinking or Netflix or shopping or whatever is is binge-worthy activity in, in your life? And Jesus says, be always on the watch and pray. Pray that you'll be able to escape all that's about to happen 
and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. I was asking myself this week as I read this text, is prayer still at the core of my life or has it gradually been moving out to the periphery? Where is, where's my focus? All right, let me close with this question for you. Which tonight would you say is the greater danger for you? Is it fear? And you need to hear Jesus say, don't be afraid. Not a hair of your head will perish. Or is it distraction? And you need to hear Jesus say, don't be distracted. Don't let the sharp edge of your expectation get dulled by parties and drinking and shopping. Are we too caught up in the bad things or are we too caught up in the good things? Jesus calls us to be caught up in the one thing When these things happen and begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. If we stand firm in our faith, we will see what our hearts have longed for, the Son of Man coming on a cloud with great power and great glory. Years ago, I met uh, a Presbyterian pastor in Pittsburgh, Bruce Thielman, and uh, he, he preached once a sermon and I've, I've never forgotten it and I went and found it because in it he tries to picture that day when Christ returns and we who are waiting and stand up can rejoice that we are seeing our redemption draw near and he puts it like this I see Jesus as the book of Revelation sees him riding on a white horse his vesture is dipped in blood And on that vesture and on his thigh is a name so holy that none of us can know it. And behind him riding are the legions of heaven. First come the enemies he has defeated, sin and death and principalities and powers. And behind them all also robed in white come Moses and Miriam with the multitudes they led out of Egypt, Gideon and his 300, Elijah, and the 7,000 who did not bow the knee and bail. Esther, with a queen's tiara, who risked her life in a pagan culture to stand for the people of God. Peter and the thousands who responded to his preaching. Paul, bearing the triumphant scars of his beatings for the faith, along with the scores who came to Christ through his announcement of the gospel. And behind them follow all those who followed Jesus in their lives. There's old people on crutches and young people in strollers. They come regiment by regiment and army by army and legion by legion, all behind the one who wears many crowns. And his word is such a power that it's like a sword from his mouth. And as they follow, they cry out, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the king of life. He is the Lord of life after death. Christ the valiant, Christ the victor. Amen.